My name's David Savage. I'm 35 years old and I'm an amateur but enthusiastic trail runner over half marathon and marathon distance. Earlier this year, I was diagnosed with autoimmune hepatitis, a rare chronic condition affecting around 10,000 people in the UK. When I got the diagnosis, honestly, I didn't really know what to think, but I wanted to find stories and inspiration of others who had chronic conditions but were still pushing themselves beyond limits that most people would give up at. That's what the Chronically Fit Show is. It's stories from ordinary folk like me and elite athletes who, in the face of a chronic condition, are achieving extraordinary things. Launching on the 5th of November, we'll be publishing every Thursday an interview and then some analysis from some experts around health and fitness, and it'll be available on all good streaming platforms. You know, that model led, led to siloing where uh, each of the squads was collaborating, you know, near, nearly constantly in Slack, in Zoom. Um, but then the sort of like inter-squad collaboration has kind of broken down and, and we didn't really do enough to reinforce that. Just in terms of, you know, maybe even social activities, but also um, work activities that, that cross those collaboration boundaries. Coming up on today's show, we are talking to John, the CTO and co-founder of Launch Darkly, the same organization that we featured on Tuesday's version of the podcast, except this time we fast-forwarded six weeks to catch up with the organization at the other end of this extraordinary summer. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, where we talk to leaders from across the industry and bring you a bit of technology news. Welcome to part two of Launch Darkly Week. I'm joined by Akish. How are you? Hello. I'm good, thank you. I'm very From good. Yeah. Edith on Tuesday. We're talking to John on Friday. We've gone yep. six weeks in four or five days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, um, yeah, I hope those. Two, I hope Edith and John listen to it and listen to their own podcast a bit more because um, I'm serious. We need to do a little competition. See, see who gets more. <laughs> see, see who gets more uh, more plays. But yeah, before, before we dive into that. I just want to say, um, I, I, as you know, I, I've entered a triathlon next year. Yep. I, I, I did this without really researching much. I knew I needed a bike. Oh my god, tri bikes are yes. a thing. I didn't realise tri bikes are a thing. Right. I'm not going to buy a tri bike. I'm going to buy a road bike because I'm mm-hmm. a newbie, and that'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Triathlon bikes start like two thousand pounds. They go up to like eight, ten, twelve. Like it's the cost of a car. Yeah. Expensive, are they? Mental. I went on Google and I was like, triathlon bikes, cheap triathlon bike. And it was yeah. like 1,600, tw- uh, £2,000. Like, that's a cheap one. So you have to so take your like, own bike. Can't use, they don't provide a bike if you enter a triathlon. No, 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 no. no. So you've got to have your own bike. You've got to have your own tri suit. You've got to have your own wetsuit. You've obviously got to have your own running shoes. So you've got to have the wetsuit, the goggles, the bike, the running shoes, yeah. and all of like the gear fucking expensive i didn't realize <laughs> i was like yeah 52 pounds Ooh, and the rest oh 10 grand on a bike for two wheels no aircon no sat nav no leather seats <laughs> i don't think that's the point of a triathlon though, right? no exactly to be fair i'm like oh if i'm spending 10 grand i at least want you know a bluetooth uh speaker system <laughs> oh no. that's mad oops 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 well I guess, uh, yeah. Well, uh, you, you're going to end up buying one, aren't you? So, 
keep us posted on how much road bike road bike yeah yeah no not a tri bike that's uh fair enough yeah oops um (laughs) anyway i just wanted to share that with you because good luck with that slightly kind of like Wow, that that was a surprise. Um, let's get to the interview with John. As I said, six weeks on from Tuesday's interview with Edith. Um, launched Darkly, feature management company helping software developers get code to machines and to production. We'll hand over to John. We'll be back with some commentary and some news afterwards. So today we are talking to John Kodumal. Uh, you are the CTO at Launch Darkly. Thank you for taking some time this morning. It's 9am where you are on the west coast of the States, right? That's right. Thanks, David. It's, it's a pleasure to speak with you. And about six weeks ago, I recorded a conversation uh, with your colleague, your CEO, um, Edith. The plan is to release both of these at the same time and have a have a bit of a week where we give it over to, to the business. So hopefully uh, people will have heard Edith speak earlier in the week and be a bit familiar with the business, but it's worth just in case they haven't listened to that episode to just kind of get a 30 second to a minute long kind of intro to Launch Darkly from your perspective. Yeah, happy to do that. So Launch Darkly uh, is a feature management company. Uh, what we do is we enable software developers, anybody building software to utilize feature flags to improve their delivery processes. Uh, that's what we do in a nutshell. It's been transformative for a lot of the companies that have been using us in terms of how they get software from the developer's desktop to production use in front of their customers. And you are CTO there. You've been CTO there for, well, just just over, let, let's have a look at it. So it's, it's six years or so now. So I suppose the last year or the last six months must be wildly different to everything that you've known before. Or actually, has it been that big a change? It has been massively different. Yeah. So um, I co-founded LaunchDarkly with Edith. Um, yep. So she and I have been doing this from the beginning. We started out just the two of us in a tiny co-working space. And um, I'm, uh, I was hands-on keyboard writing the first version of the product. Um, and so my role has kind of evolved massively from, uh, you know, two people uh, sharing a single desk in a co-working space to a 200 plus person company. Uh, but yeah, the last year has seen kind of the most change in, in a rapid succession that we've ever seen. And obviously the, the thing that has impacted us the most uh, has been um, the global pandemic, COVID, and, and how, is it, how it has shifted us into becoming a, a remote first company. Has it changed the business though that much? And, and look, I, absolutely, on the surface, there's been massive amounts of change, but isn't it an acceleration rather than a deviation? Aren't we kind of going through a sped up evolution of probably where we were going anyway? It's, it's a mix of both, um, and it's affected departments in LaunchDarkly differently. So for the engineering team, for example, um, just in terms of processes, like in terms of developing the software, in terms of keeping it running, it hasn't been so massive a change. But um, let me give you another example. We're a very enterprise-focused business. Um, some of our customers include you know, some of the largest companies in the Fortune 100, and you know, our sales processes have been, we have, we have traditional enterprise sales. And that means in a lot of cases, uh, closing a deal means people, you know, people from our revenue team actually flying out and visiting customers, establishing relationships, and really establishing the value that LaunchDarkly provides, because there's an enormous amount of trust required um, for, you know, a Fortune 100 company, say a bank or, um, or a government organization to put LaunchDarkly into production. And without those personal relationships, without the ability to sort of just stand face to face and say, you know, here's the positive value that we've provided to some of our customers, 
it just makes things a little bit more challenging. And so that's, that's definitely been an adaptation that we faced. And then I would say like, you know, broadly speaking, the shift from uh, us all kind of working together in one office in the Bay Area, in Oakland specifically, to all being geographically sort of distributed, even though some of, most of us are still within a 20 mile radius of each other. Um, that's been, that's led to a unique set of challenges on, on, a, on a, you know, collaboration perspective on an interpersonal basis as well. Now, look, I'm sure that we'll touch on maybe some kind of surprising hidden processes that you uncovered along the way. But just from a personal level, before we hit record, you said, you know, I said to you, how's your morning going? And you said, you've got to get your kids set up. And how how is, has that aspect been? Because I suppose when you're all in the office, it's kind of a given, isn't it? Everyone's got their personalized, but it's, it's arranged, it's sorted. And then you come into the office and you're there to work. Whereas now, as you said, you lead an organization of 200 plus people and it's difficult for them to separate those two things. And I suppose it must be difficult for you as a leader to know exactly how to best support that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that, uh, that has helped me is um, I'm personally experiencing it. I have, my wife is a, a, a surgeon, so I have the fun job and she has the hard job. Um, and she's, you know, she's been working during the, the whole pandemic. And um, we have two kids uh, here in the United States. Um, schools are still at home. So, you know, we're doing mm-hmm. distance learning. I've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. Um, and so my ability to empathize people with people that are in, in these types of really challenging situations where the lines between work and personal life are, are extremely blurred. Um, I mean, it's just, it's really obvious to me because I'm experiencing it myself. Um, some people, people without families, I think it's been a little bit different, you know, obviously they've been impacted too. Um, but I can definitely sense or have a direct experience with the unique challenges that come from, uh, all of a sudden having a family of, you know, three or four people potentially in the same house, all trying to use technology, you know, all struggling with the transition into using tools like zoom, um, on a daily basis. Um, if you've never seen uh, a seven-year-old, a kindergartner uh, trying to use Zoom and trying to raise their hand in a classroom of 15 people, it's a sight to see. It's really challenging. Yeah, yeah. Look, I imagine that in the time that it's been since I first spoke to Edith, and again, you know, we're putting these podcasts out close together, but there is there is a kind of a six-week period in between the two. What challenge? What challenges did you discover through the summer that was perhaps perhaps unexpected that 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 you uncovered that you weren't, you weren't, you hadn't been able to foresee, I suppose. Yeah, I think we, I think we might've focused on some of the obvious things, right? Like how are we going to collaborate? How are we going to do our work uh, in this situation, right? Like what processes do we have that have really over relied or over indexed on face-to-face interactions? Um, And we, we really focused up front on those. And I think what we maybe could have done more on is, a deeper understanding of, of uh, like the, the psychological changes that come along with this. Um, so one of the examples is we, you know, our culture really heavily revolved around us seeing each other. Um, we uh, we've built a, a pretty deep culture around being rooted in Oakland, which is, um, you know, it's, it's for those that aren't aware, uh, Oakland is not in San Francisco. It's, it's, it's across the bridge. So it's a little bit of a different and there's a little bit less tech in Oakland. Um, mm. we've really focused um, part of our cultural identity on being an Oakland-based company rather than a San Francisco-based company. And mm-hmm. so once you take that away, um, once it, once the, the idea of us being in Oakland isn't, isn't actually a physical thing anymore, um, that left a gap in our culture. 
We also noticed, uh, I also noticed that there's been a tremendous amount of siloing that's kind of inherent with, uh, with, with the move to being virtual. And so what we've seen is, you know, the teams that are working together on a day-to-day basis, the squads, we have a squad-based organization here at LaunchDarkly. So teams of six or eight developers with a product manager and a product designer are collaborating really tightly. Um, you know, that model led, led to siloing where uh, each of the squads was collaborating, you know, near, nearly constantly in Slack, in Zoom. Um, but then the sort of like inter-squad collaboration has kind of broken down and, and we didn't really do enough to reinforce that just in terms of, you know, maybe even social activities, but also um, work activities that, that cross those collaboration boundaries. So that, that's something that I think if I was going to do it again, knowing that up front, there are things that I would have done differently, right? Uh, I would have done things like provided more opportunity to do, you know, virtual offsites across teams or, mm-hmm. um, or even just provide more opportunities to, to, to collaborate during the day across squads, maybe organize projects a little differently. It's interesting that you, you talk about that tension there because actually it came up in another podcast that we've recorded recently where, where we were speaking to an organization who's talking about the tension between them being, again, an agile and lean-based organization and some of their clients still operating on waterfoil mm-hmm. uh, uh, methodologies and that tension being more apparent now uh, that they were in a remote environment. Do you, do you think that there's more tension intra the business and like you say, making sure that silos don't build up in within the business or is it at the same time that the, the, the differences between you and your and your clients are, are a little bit more stark and you have to work at those are a bit harder um i think we have seen a lot within the company right because of that that cross team collaboration has broken down the cross department collaboration has broken down a little bit as well and that's something that has been uh something that we've had to try to deliberately reinforce um you know i think a common thing with uh, companies selling to uh, enterprises that have lar- large enterprise sales teams is you can have this sort of like disconnect between the revenue organization and the product delivery team. And uh, historically, we've been really good at that within LaunchDarkly. And, you know, part of what made that really healthy is uh, the fact that we were all together and we could really have shared experiences, just the hallway conversations, the water cooler conversations. And I think one of the things we've discovered is that, um there are with Zoom, right? Everything is much more regimented. The meetings you're having are the ones that are scheduled out of necessity. You're never like walking by someone and having an accidental conversation about this specific customer. As it relates to customers, I think one of the challenges that we've seen is that, um, you know, again, like getting in front of a customer is is a little bit more challenging. Talking to them is a little bit more challenging. Everyone is sort of all of our clients to some degree have been impacted by COVID. And a lot of them are just sort of like rapidly, really fast moving towards more agile development practices, looking to us to, to sort of help them along that way. Um, but they're, they're trying to adapt really, really quickly. And they're really, um, you know, it, it's something where they've, they've, um, they've really felt the need to move quickly and are, and we've just had to interact and, and operate with them as, as as best we can in that world. Did you think that strengthened your relationship as a partner? Then it's interesting, isn't it? Because the way you're talking, they're going through huge change. They obviously they obviously trust you as a business. You can't be on site with them, but they're almost more reliant on you than they were before. Yeah, a lot of them are. Uh, it, it is. It has been a thing where the use of feature flags, in particular, has kind of accelerated a business's ability to react to rapid change. Um, I'll give like a concrete example. We have 
clients that are in the sort of like food delivery business, right? And so food delivery has changed rapidly over the past eight months. Uh, their usage has spiked dramatically and sort of like the processes and policies they've had to to they've had to adjust them dynamically in response to COVID. And feature flags have helped out substantially with that. Um, and so some of them have told us like, okay, without you, we wouldn't have been able to, you know, change the regulations or change the website, change the ordering processes in these locales uh, at the flip of a switch. That's been hugely beneficial. With new clients, it's a little bit, you know, uh, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit of a challenge because I think everybody is sort of simultaneously trying to move quickly and adapt to this and, and you know, accelerate their, their digital transformation. On the other hand, a lot of people's budgets have been uh, impacted pretty heavily. And so coming in as a new solution, it's sort of like, uh, okay, we need to simultaneously prove the value of our product and prove that, the, um, prove that it's worth the, the, the cost that we're incurring and prove that we'll help you down this transformation step. Out of interest, just on a, on a personal level, do you think it's changed your role that much? I mean, CTO, when you're co-founder of an organization, you've built it through that, those stages. I mean, I don't know how kind of close you were to um, writing code anymore. I suspect probably not, but maybe you had some oversight with what your teams were doing and a, and a bit more of a hands-on role. I'm just curious to see whether or not the pandemic has really changed your role a great to a great degree. Do you still feel it's a traditional CTO role? I think the CTO role, it means different things at different organizations. Um, what, it's, what it means at LaunchDarkly is, um, you know, I have a, a, I'm a very product-focused CTO. So my spin on the CTO role is um, to still be involved in the product more in a strategic direction because, as you say, I'm, hand, I'm pretty hands-off. So for me, one of the things I learned in my career is, you know, at, at this stage, if I'm dive-bombing into individual issues in our issue tracker, that's a problem. I'm doing something wrong. Um, so, you know, for, for me being involved in the product, it is something that I don't think that that has substantially changed. My ability to interact with the teams from that perspective um, hasn't changed massively. Um, what has changed for me is sort of the other hat I wear, not as CTO, but as co-founder, um, where I feel my role is to uh, help build a company that, you know, meets my meets my vision of what a company should be, like the impact that we should have as an organization um, on our people, on, on our customers. And, and that is something where I've really, I've really felt I've had to um, devote more effort into that side of things. Look, last point, and I'll come back to your comment about Oakland. I'll, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. My only knowledge of Oakland comes from Moneyball. Uh, <laughs> and the Oakland A's and, and, and yeah. that whole storyline, right? Um, do you feel that it's going to be easier to try and, I don't know, maybe resurrect some of that culture that you had prior to the pandemic? Or as an organization, do you think that it's about forming something new, taking elements of what you had, but forming something new going forward that's going to help you build the business that you want? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I like that you brought up Moneyball because I think, um, <laughs> you know, without any knowledge of Oakland, if you've seen Moneyball, there's an element in that that really represents what Oakland is to me. And it's that sort of like scrappiness of, okay, we, we're not San Francisco. We're not drowning in tech money, right? We're not... We're not Silicon Valley darlings in in Oakland. Um, we have to get by with what we have, and that was how Edith and I really ran the business for for a long while. When we started the company, for example, like we could have been in a WeWork in in a fancy spot in downtown San Francisco. Instead, we were in this scrappy art gallery slash 
you know, really kind of run, a little bit run down, I'm going to be honest, uh, co-working space in, in the middle of downtown Oakland. And that's how we ran things from, from, from the beginning. Um, and so maybe the change that will happen for us is that uh, being in Oakland, being in Oakland, being, having the spirit of Oakland, uh, there's a term for it, uh, Oaklandish or Oaklandish. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but but that sort of like spirit will continue to live on in a different way. Maybe it doesn't mean that we're physically present in Oakland, but maybe it means that we're we continue to be this sort of like scrappy organization that um, you know that has an outsized impact. Um, I love to think that the culture that we're building at 200 people um, can can adapt to that. And, and even though we're hiring a lot of people across the United States now, we're becoming much more remote. Um, that's something that we can we can continue to have live on in the company. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It's fascinating to get kind of that slightly different angle perspective on the same organization. So thank you very much for your time this morning. I hope you have a lovely day and then nearly the weekend. So I suppose a bit of a break from, from being both a kind of assistant uh, teacher as well as as well as uh, a CTO at the same time. Uh, so look, good luck with that and thanks for your time. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure. Right. So they went from two people to 200 people over the course of six years. But John talks about the fact that the most change in a rapid period of time has happened over the last summer. I think that's happened with everyone in it, really. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, in- it's interesting to hear founders say that, you know. Yeah, yeah. That they have grown so much yeah from just those two people to 200 people you'd think that would encompass the big change yeah nothing has structurally changed about their business they haven't really grown during that they are hiring now as they say across america but the the cultural shift on the business has been absolutely massive and it's really interesting to hear him divide it down into parts of the business rather than talk about the business as a whole. Mm. And I think the good thing is, is it almost, uh, you know, it's almost alluded to the fact that when their backs were up against the wall, as any organization really, you know, over the last few months, they've had to, they've had to make those um, kind of sporadic changes, but also I think, you know, may have mentioned it uh, in, in the interview, but, you know, it, it's kudos to the workforce that they have at the moment and the people, right? I mean, any change like that can only happen if there's strong enough personalities in the business to overcome the difficulties, the harsh times. And obviously with the well, yeah, with Edith and John, with both of them, it's a case of, right, you know, if, if they can force it and if they can push the agenda, um, they probably got some great people and, and, mm. you know, without being cliche and as cliche as it does sound, you know, people are at the core of the business. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if you, if you ain't got people that have got the heart and the willingness to, to help change and drive that culture, you ain't going nowhere really. <laughs> um, yeah. so fair enough to them to be fair. Cause I, yeah, I would have thought that change of, 198 people would bring about a lot of cultural shift, but it seems like it took a global pandemic and people to be, you know, locked up in their houses to, to kind of bring it about really. I think you make some really interesting points about their sales processes. You know, we don't often talk about the sales aspect behind technology, lots of technology solutions. They have to, they have to get in front of a customer. They have to convince a customer that this is something worth spending money on. Uh, And he talks, you know, about, uh, uh, positioning the value of the product and helping an organization through their transformation journey. He talks about the fact that they were a traditional enterprise sales organization, establishing trust via via in-person meetings. 
which is obviously not possible. And how, yeah, the engineering side of the uh, of the business, kind of fine with what's going on. Mm. The sale, the enterprise sales part of the business, real sea change about how they go about working, and that's not been spoken a huge amount about. That's part of the industry that's that is actually quite key to the success mm. of many tech businesses that has been not talked about. Yeah, it's a huge part though, isn't it? Really, I mean, every time we we well, every time we jump on this, we talk about you know the product, what's happening, you know the 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 capabilities, how customers are are benefited, but we're not actually thinking about the process for the technology to allow it to come to our phones or to our computers or whatever. And in and amongst that, there is a sales process, and you know the, the sales side has been tough for anyone, and it's not because companies haven't got money i don't think i don't you know mm. there, there may be cases where funds are dried up but i think it's more you just can't get that kind of relationship you just can't get that rapport built online you know me and you could have a conversation sat like this and we do for about 10 15 minutes before we hit record podcast because we know each other yeah. but had we met for the first time then it may be a little bit awkward you know, um, you can understand. I mean, we've said it before, I think months ago, you can understand whether or not someone's competent at their job. It's an entirely different thing going, do I like them? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and I think, I think the fact that they're bringing about kind of changes with their sales function and, and kind of almost, almost just developing a, a new way of selling really, mm. um, which I think not just in the technology industry everywhere. I mean, even, even, the industry that you and I are both work in, you know, we, we've had to adopt and, and change and think about yeah. new new ways and and yeah, he and that's mentioned not easy. yeah, exactly. He mentioned kind of Zoom and these sorts of things. I mean, who who was using Teams sat in the office with each other? Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't to put my hand but up. He talk, he talks about Zoom being very very regimented. <laughs> he talks about the lack of serendipity. He talks about you know a lot of those those issues that people have spoken about. No water cooler moments. No hallway mm. conversations. And we still haven't really fixed that. And it's interesting because it leads into that other point where he was talking about squads and he was talking about collaboration. You know, collaboration in amongst teams of seven and eight really really strong. And you can see that like you you could have um, a WhatsApp group that's really lots of ideas flying around, whatever else, or, or a particular chat on teams, but then actually from one team to another, mm. it's harder to collaborate. Yeah. And he's talking about, you know, should we have done things differently? Um, you know, should we have uh, taken people off site, mm. uh, virtual off site, um, t- kind of, uh, collaboration sessions or organize projects differently so it'd be interesting to know if organizations have you know maybe agile and waterfall are not hmm. the approaches to running projects anymore when you can't collaborate in the way that you used to i don't know yeah exactly and i think that rapport thing's massive because within your own teams and your own squad there's always that rapport trust friendship relationship whatever right yeah but i think what businesses now are seeing is like right we've got team a b and c they all work great within each other but how how are we going to get team a to speak to team c how's that all going to come along because at the end of the day if you're doing an end-to-end process whether it's a product development launching something sales whatever you need everyone to speak to everyone um yeah. and we're, we're seeing different organizations hire people at the top to help manage this you know kind of communication or help manage this kind of you know uh, change we're seeing people in the trenches so to speak you know, help kind of launch initiatives or platforms. Um, 
you know the the, the kind of uh, we've seen it internally we we tried to do like an office meetup day where everyone dropped into the office but then lo and behold the rates start going up so you can't do that necessarily anymore so you know there, there, there's things is there a set format which is working at the moment probably not i don't <laughs> think so you just need everyone to be honest and professional as they can really it's it's hard you know yeah, yeah. to be honest um but i think with with if you've got people at the top like you know edith and john or, or you know other people in other organizations that maybe listen to this if you've got the vision and you've got the the kind of people i think it, it can happen um and it and it will happen any of our listeners who've got solutions to what's being talked about here we'd love to hear from you get in yeah. touch you know get in touch on instagram um on twitter so hn tech talks on instagram at tech double underscore talks on twitter uh john and edith it's been awesome to have you as guests to get those that that contrasting perspective six weeks apart from one organization um slightly different and, and fun way to do the podcast this week uh we'll go to a quick advert break when we come back we'll be back on one of our favorite subjects of 2020 now that we're officially in the run into christmas why not think about giving a gift with a story behind it alive and kicking are using football as a force for good and helping to support mental health education across Africa. You can do the same by giving someone a football from aliveandkicking.org forward slash shop. Now the footballs come in retro 90s kit designs, so go have a look and give a unique gift that will help make a huge difference to more than just the person who receives it this Christmas. Is that Donald Trump? It's not Donald Trump. Oh, it could be. Come on, mate. He's, be. he's in the news at the moment, isn't he? Just a little yeah. bit. Oh, COVID, COVID, COVID. Oh, God. <laughs> don't look. This is going out to an American audience. I don't think they'd appreciate two Brits weighing in <laughs> on their election. But fuck me if they re-elect Donald Trump. What are you doing? <laughs> I'd we, like we, to hope that our We could help them. We could help them. Look, they could say we, <laughs> we were not going to turn up to the polls. We were not going to cast a vote because basically it's just two nobodies and we're not really bothered right and if me and you help change things fuck me you know we've we've got a new job (laughs) even if you voted conservative at the last election you're probably still a socialist by american standards (laughs) (laughs) we are not we are not talking to our core audience if we're trying to persuade a make america great again supporter to switch their vote for trump but there are times when you know that you're in a conversation with someone or you see someone on on news talking about why they support Trump, and you just go, what? Oh, what? It, it just makes you cringe, doesn't it? It's just, it's just like, have you got that lack of awareness about the world? Anyway. Anyway, oh, right, yeah. What about that, mate? Vote it's who you about- want if you're listening in America. Just, you know, just no, be careful. No, no I'm not going to say that. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just not going to wait. I already have waited. But... <laughs> right, now I'm going to talk about track and trace. Oh, brilliant. Here oh. we go. Here's another one. Back should, in the news. should I open mine up just so it's no no this 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 is brilliant it's another bit of news that we have to talk about NHS COVID app does not work for phones set to French and Spanish users with devices in unsupported languages also including Portuguese and Italian just see a blank screen brilliant fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> and I raise this now because you kind of go oh for God's sake because the whole point about a track you know the whole point about track and trace it's, sorry, about lockdown rather, is lockdown gives you the breathing space to get your track and trace working mm. to make sure that you keep the, the the virus under control to stop second waves, third waves, whatever we might be looking at. Yeah. And if you look at countries like South Korea, where they got track and trace in place quickly and rolled it out and it was successful, they've had like 500 deaths or something. Mm. 
You look at a country like ours where it was world leading, but it's not, and it's failed abysmally. We're heading back into the winter where various parts of the country are going to tier three. London is probably going to end up in tier three soon. Hopefully not before Saturday, because I've got a Halloween meal booked at Balthazar's in Covent Garden, <laughs> which is probably irresponsible in itself. But please, for the love of God, sort out the app. Yeah, is mental. The the amount of issues we've uh, we've had with this app. I, I, I'm sure you have as well, and, and you know people that are working for Track and Trace and have kind of given up their you know lucrative role. Yeah, good people. In, Let's yeah, look, good people this, in this industry is not having a go at the people who are working no, on this specific not. like individual level. Yeah, but. At a, at a large level, at an organisational level, and I have to imagine it comes from the leadership and government, yep. it is a complete shit show. Yeah, and, and I mean, how many people speak all those languages? I'm, I'm going to talk about London first, right? Let's start small. How many people are there from these big European countries like Spain, Italy, yeah. it Portugal? Well, Spain, France, Portugal and Italy, yeah. apart from Germany, like there are major cousins. Yeah, exactly. You know? The app is localized into 10 other languages. So Bengali, simplified Chinese, Urdu, and Polish, yep. it all works on. But somehow they forgot French. It's 20-odd yeah. miles away if you're on the south coast. Yeah. And it's, like, it's yeah, oh, my God. And that's... the point being, it's like, oh, well, you know, you just have to change your phone setting to speak whatever, you know, English. Hmm. But if, if your language skills aren't... If English isn't your first language and, and it's not something you're comfortable with, you're not going to do that. Yeah. And that creates a bias in itself. Yeah, of course. You, get, you know, it just creates a bias. Well, if you can't speak English and you can't read English properly, then you won't really know what's going on and uh, you won't be able to, collect, you know, take part in our track and trace for the country. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was a proper it? rant on two different fronts <laughs> <laughs> to end the week. Anyone listening to like, what have they been drinking? Uh, <laughs> we've not left the we've not left the house all week, so uh, you know. Seventeen percent of our audience is American. I think from next week it'll probably be like five percent. Yeah, keep <laughs> listening. To them. Keep listening. Don't get pissed off, please. On mass. <laughs> Promise for <laughs> us. Please vote. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have a lovely weekend. We'll be back you next too. week with our 350th show. Ooh.